We've been looking for the last few weeks at what we're calling fundamental truths. And I made mention last time that these fundamental truths are in some ways like pillars. They provide the foundation uh, upon which everything else uh, is based. There is a strength of support with regard to them. Whether we're talking about the existence of God or the deity of Jesus, the fact that Jesus is the Christ that the Old Testament looked forward to, that he is the Son of God, or whether we're talking about the Bible being the inspired Word of God. All three of those ideas or concepts are absolutely essential to our belief system. They are fundamental truths. Now, if it's the case that God does exist and that Jesus is the Son of God and that the Bible is the Word of God, then the church that is described in Scripture is not something that we should simply dismiss or push aside, but it becomes the, as Scripture calls it, the body of the saved. And so we started looking at the church last time, and we noticed several factors about it, but one being that the church is composed of people. And yet, it's described by use of a variety of analogies. And the analogies that are utilized to describe the church are significant because when an analogy is used, it's used for a reason. The church isn't just described as if it is the house of God just so that someone might have something to say. It's likened to the house of God because there are similarities between what the temple was for God and what the church is supposed to be for God's people. And we talked briefly about that analogy as we began last time, and we looked at 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, where the Apostle Paul told Timothy, If I am delayed, I write to you so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Now what Paul had in mind was to be able to visit face-to-face -face with Timothy, but he wasn't sure if he would have that opportunity. And so he said, if I'm delayed, if I can't get to you in person, the very reason I have written this letter, 1 Timothy, was so that you and the congregation at Ephesus, where Timothy was preaching, would know how to conduct yourself in the house of God. Now that language, house of God, brings to mind, at least for those individuals in that time frame, and it should for us as well, the concept of the temple of God. And then he goes on and he says, which is the church of the living God, the pillar of and ground of the truth. This is not the only time in Scripture where the concept of the house of God is attached to the church. And it's not a mistake that in the book of Ephesians, the very same congregation to which Timothy was preaching when Paul wrote 1 Timothy, is also told that the church is like unto the house of God. So open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Similar language in the passage. Verse 19 beginning. Paul writes and he says, Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, 
Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. And so you have that language, household of God, temple of the Lord, being used to apply to what the Ephesian Christians were collectively, and that is the church. They were the house of God, a place for the dwelling of the Spirit of God. And Paul uses that same kind of language in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 as well. Now, the question is, why is this analogy used? Why is the church like unto the house of God? If you look at 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, it is because the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. Because the truth provides the foundation, or the church provides the foundation from which truth can resonate. If you look at what Paul writes to the Ephesians, you find out that the church is to be built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets and that Jesus Christ himself is our chief cornerstone. It is built upon certain truths. That reminds us of what Jesus told Peter, doesn't it? Matthew, the 16th chapter. Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon, bar Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. There is that foundational principle that Jesus is the Christ that serves to form the basis for the church. So the church is the house of God in Scripture, and there are qualities that certainly should be reflected. The church is also described as the flock of God. And perhaps the chief way in which that is done is in Paul's sermon to the Ephesian elders. Look at Acts chapter 20 very briefly. One of the statements that he makes to the elders of the congregation at Ephesus is this in verse 28. He says, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. So we could say that the church is the house of God, and as such it should serve as the pillar and ground of the truth, and it should also be built upon the foundation of the teachings of the apostles, and especially that of Jesus Christ. And we could say that the church is the flock of God, based upon the statement here in Acts the 20th chapter. And by the way, we'll talk a lot more later on in this series about the role of the elders in shepherding the congregation. But at least in this passage you find this statement that really does have implications for us as God's people. Elders are to take heed among themselves and to the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Now, over whom do elders have authority? They have authority over the members of the congregation. In this case, the members of the congregation are referred to as a flock. They are to be shepherded, that is, they are to be guided, they are to be protected, they are to be led. Why would the church be like unto the flock of God? To remind us that we are to be followers of God's plan. That we're not supposed to be renegades, 
that we're not supposed to do whatever it is that pleases us, but that God has a plan that He has set in place that the church is supposed to follow and that we'll be held accountable as to whether or not we follow the plan that God has. So the church is likened to the house of God. It's likened to the flock of God. Uh, another thing that we could say by way of analogy that the church is likened to is that of the spokesman for God. And you see that really playing out very nicely in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 where Paul is complimenting the Thessalonian Christians. He's writing to the church of the Thessalonians and he wants them to know that what they have been doing evangelistically is exactly what the church is supposed to do. He says in verse 8 of that text, For you, or for, for from you, the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. That reminds us of the commission that Jesus gave his apostles. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Well, if you look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 8 and you realize that the church really is the mouthpiece for God, it is the spokesman for God, it is that entity through which the message of God is proclaimed, that tells us what our task is, what our job is. If we don't teach others about God's plan, who will? If the church doesn't share the gospel, how will the gospel be shared? And so it reminds us of the responsibility that we have as the people of God. Now, the analogies are very significant in helping us to come to terms with what the church is supposed to be about. That it's not merely a building or a location, but that there are obligations that are attached to it. We're to provide support for the truth, but be based upon the truth that we find in God's Word. We are to follow the plan of God. We are to speak forth the message of God, and we're to be the family of God. Paul prays in the third chapter of the book of Ephesians, and in that prayer you find these beautiful words. He says, beginning in verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Now when he uses that word family, what does he have reference to? Family. Well, when we think about that terminology, we think about our relatives, at least initially. You might think about your mother and your father. Maybe you have siblings. You might think about your brothers or your sisters. Maybe it's your grandparents or your aunts and uncles or your cousins but you understand the concept of family. Now, why is that important? It's important because a family is supposed to love one another. Now, sadly, not every family treats one another in that way. And we understand that. But the ideal of the family, as it is depicted in Scripture, is that the members of the family are going to provide assistance to one another, they are going to help one another. They're going to uphold the arms of those who are weak, of those who are struggling. They are going to help in times of need. Family members truly rejoice when good things happen to their family members. 
family members truly weep when bad things happen to their family members. We're supposed to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We're supposed to uphold the arms of those who are weak. We're supposed to love one another and care for one another and help one another get through the difficulties of life. The reason the church is like unto a family is not only to remind us that we are children of God and joint heirs with Christ, which absolutely is the case, but to remind us that we have a mutual relationship with one another that we're supposed to care for one another. So when you look at the church as it's described in Scripture, you find a variety of things out just by looking at the analogies that are used. Whether we're talking about the church being the house of God, or the church being the flock of God, or the spokesman of God, or the family of God, or as the kingdom of God. And we're going to look at some of these passages perhaps in more detail later on. But look at Daniel chapter 2 with me just briefly. In the second chapter of the book of Daniel, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, has a dream. And one of the things about the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has had that is significant is that he would not reveal this dream to those who claim to have the ability to interpret it. It would have been easy enough if he had told them, well, this is what I dreamed, tell me what it means, for someone to make up an answer. That didn't happen. He told the interpreters that they not only had to tell him what the meaning of the dream was, they had to tell him what the dream was. And they said, this is a hard thing. This is not possible. We can't do this. And he said, well, if you don't, you're going to die. And they started scrambling around looking for someone who might have the ability to do that. And Daniel was found. And Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar that it was not through his own ability, but through the ability of God that the dream could be made known. And he told Nebuchadnezzar what he had dreamed. It was a vision of a great statue that eventually was hit by a very small rock and broken in pieces. And that rock that crushed the statue ended up growing into something very massive. The statue was divided into four parts. It had a head of gold and a body of silver and a midriff of brass and legs of iron and feet of iron mixed with clay. And as Daniel interprets the dream, he starts telling Nebuchadnezzar what each part of that statue represents. He said, you, O king, are the head of gold. The Babylonian empire was the golden head of the image. And then as you trace the history of what follows, the Medes and the Persians came in line next. They represented the silver part of the body. The, Greek, or the Greeks rather uh, followed after uh, the midriff of brass and then the Romans later, the legs of iron and the feet of iron mixed with clay. And when he was describing the Roman kingdom, this is what he said in the passage that I have listed. Romans, or rather, Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44. He says, And in the days of these kings, the Roman kings, 
the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. The kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. That rock that breaks off and causes the destruction of the great statue has representation of this kingdom that would indeed come into existence during the days of the Roman Empire. It was a kingdom that would never be destroyed because it wasn't physical in nature like the Babylonian kingdom or the Mede and the Persian kingdom or the Greek kingdom or the Roman kingdom. It was a spiritual kingdom which tells us a little bit more about the nature of the church as well. There's a reason, by the way, why when Jesus talks about what he would do uh, in building his church upon the confession that Peter makes in Matthew the 16th chapter, that he goes on and immediately says to Peter, and I will give to you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. He's not talking about two different things. He's talking about the church. The church is the kingdom under consideration. He told some individuals during his lifetime that assuredly I say to you, you will not taste death till you see the kingdom of God present with power. Mark chapter 9 and verse 1. And we know that the power that Jesus was talking about there, the power that he was anticipating, had to do with the Holy Spirit when he told them just before his ascension that the power would come when the Spirit came. And we can conclude rightly so that when the Spirit came in Acts the second chapter, the power that Jesus had promised came and the kingdom came. The church came into existence. Now why is the church likened unto a kingdom? I think perhaps more than anything else to remind us that we're not in control. That we have a king of kings who is above all of us. Now it's not the same kind of physical kingdom that we're used to. That's why in Isaiah chapter 2, he would talk about how they would beat their swords into plowshares. Their spears would be turned into pruning hooks. You won't need the weapons of physical warfare with regard to the church. It's a different kind of kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. But it is indeed vital for us to grasp. What kind of analogies are used in Scripture to describe the church? Well, one that is very, very common is that of a body. Look at Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Paul actually uses this language in a very clear way in this text. Verse 18. The Bible says, And He, and it has reference to Jesus, is the head of the body, the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. He is the head of the body, and then he identifies that body for us by saying the church. Jesus is the head of the body, which is the church. We find out other things about that body in various places. We find out that it is one body that's composed of many members, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 
which is a reminder to us that each of us has a role to fill. We have a responsibility. We have a task. The body isn't just composed of heads. It's not just made up of hands. There are some of us that fill the role of the hand, some that fill the role of the head in regard to work, some that fill the role of the feet. Various parts of the body are necessary for the body to function. Various individuals are necessary for the church to function. And so the church is like unto a body. And rightfully so. And then one other analogy that we'll mention briefly tonight. The church is like unto a bride. And this analogy is perhaps best presented, although it's not the only place that we find it in Scripture, in Ephesians, the fifth chapter. Paul was talking about the relationship that husbands are to have with their wives, and he gave the ultimate relationship as the pattern, the relationship that Jesus has with the church. And as he describes that, verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. Jesus Loves the church. But you find some qualities about the church that are supposed to be present. It is to be a glorious church. It is to not have spot or wrinkle or any sort of blemish. There is to be a purity that defines the church. The reason these analogies are utilized is to help us to understand just a little bit more about what the church is supposed to be. And I mentioned last time, and we'll go into much greater detail about this later, that this church that we're talking about is not a church that is to be placed alongside every other religious group that one could think of. We're not talking about comparing this to that or to something else. We're talking about the church that Jesus promised to establish. We're talking about the church that those folks who obeyed the gospel on Pentecost were added to. That's the church that we want to be a part of. It is not a sect. It is not a denomination. It is the church that belongs to Christ. And our behavior has to reflect that. We have to have a clear understanding as to what we are, the house of God. We have a task to support the truth, but we also stand on the truth. We are to be the flock of God and that we are to follow God's plan and the governmental structure that God has provided for local congregations. We are to be the spokesman for God. We speak forth God's message. We're to be the kingdom of God. Under the ruler of the king of kings, we're to be the family of God, to love one another, to care for one another, to provide for one another when times are, are difficult. And we're to be the body of Christ, and we're to be the bride of Christ. Now, with those analogies set forth, let's at least briefly introduce something that I think will be vital for us to grasp as well. Let's talk about the origin of this church. 
if we want to be a part of the, of the church that we read about in the inspired Word of God, if God exists, if Jesus is the Son of God, and if the Bible is the Word of God, and the Bible talks about the church that Jesus is the Savior of, and it does, Ephesians 5 verse 23, He is the Savior of the body, which is the church, then we'd better know when this church began. How this church began. So what do we know about it, about the origin of this body, the origin of this church? Well, as we seek to think about that, we're going to think about four components in our next lesson. The first component is going to deal with the planning of the church. And what we're going to show is that the church was not an afterthought of God. It did not simply occur because individuals rejected Jesus and therefore something else was needed. That's not the case. The church was part of the eternal purpose of God. God had a plan from all of eternity that saw the necessity of the establishment of the church that you and I have the privilege to be a part of today. And it was planned from all of eternity. We're going to talk about the prediction of the church. You see, you can go back in the Old Testament and you can see passages that look forward to the establishment of the church. We've already mentioned Daniel chapter 2. We'll go back there next time. But there are other passages that also help us to appreciate the establishment of the church. Isaiah chapter 2, for example, is another. Joel chapter 2 is a third to add. And then we'll talk, after we have talked about the planning of the church and the prediction of the church, about the proclamation of the church, because that is the very message that Jesus preached when He came to this earth. Do you realize that? Jesus came preaching, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What do you mean by that? What do you have in mind? What was the point of reference? What is this kingdom that Jesus is talking about? Well, we know it's not a worldly kingdom because he told Pilate that. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight. John 19. It's a heavenly kingdom with individuals who live on this earth who are longing for heaven. It was proclaimed. And then, of course, finally it was produced. And we'll look at when that took place. And we'll notice the impact that that should have upon us. So those are the concepts that we'll think about as we think about the origin of the church. Let me thank you for being here tonight.